Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the Murray depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched, my eyes fail looking for God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure, endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children, for zeal for you, your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song, but I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favour, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I look for sympathy but there was none, for comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his, his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it. And those who love his name 
will dwell there. Okay, well, let's come and uh, pray as we consider this psalm and hopefully take something home that's encouraging here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, working in David's life to write down these things uh, for our encouragement on whom the end of the ages has come. Father, we pray that you'd uh, help us to take seriously the challenges and to be prepared to change and to grow, to love and serve you with all our hearts. And we pray for your help in this. We thank you for these things and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder when it is that you cry out to God for help. As a kid growing up at Lighthouse Beach, I can still recall vivid memories of the time that I first broke the leg rope on my surfboard. Uh, The sea sea produced a series of big sets. Uh, It's still pretty clear in my mind as I think about my brother sailing over the first one, looking back down at me, me looking up at him, and us both thinking, hmm, I wonder if this could be it. He was up in a good spot, actually. He was floating over. He could see what else was coming. And I was in a position described as getting ready to be flogged in the impact zone. The first wave came and exploded in front of me. I didn't even try to duck dive it. I ditched my board and then I felt a big yank on my leg and then there wasn't any yanking on my leg because the leg rope had snapped and so I'd lost my board. And then I managed to um, float around for a while trying to find the surface ready, as you can guess, for the next wave to poof, wipe me out and uh, take me down once again. Memories from that point were swishing around in deep water with lots of foam, not getting much traction on my arm, so not finding it easy to get to the surface and having my lungs almost bursting because I've just had the air knocked out of them. And I started to suck in that disgusting salt water into my lungs because I needed automatically to breathe. Unfortunately, I wasn't quite at the surface when that happened. So I'm sucking in this filthy salt water and I managed just to get to the top. So I'm here today. I got, I got some air. And there are times when it seems natural to cry out to God for help. Before the first wave did hit, I can remember thinking, this could be it, and I prayed, God, will you help me get through it? Well, as Christians, we know that we do enjoy life with God here and now. And it's a great comfort to us that we stand as people in a living relationship with God. But while we still live in the world, we face all manner of challenges. Challenges to our life and health, frustrations, hostilities, fears of all kinds and sometimes danger. Now facing big waves might be the thing that's probably furthest from your mind. But you know in your own heart the things that make you depressed, the things that make your heart sink, the times when you know that it's only God who's going to make a difference to your life and to your situation. There might even be uh, challenges that you're going through, even at this stage of life right now, where you're thinking, I wonder how God's going to sort this out. Well, David's facing similar challenges in this psalm. He's facing suffering... But one of the things that's a bit interesting about this psalm is the troubles he's facing are on account of actually being obedient to God. And I wonder if that's something we've got in common with him. We might even suffer because we're obedient to God.
Well, the psalm at the start doesn't actually begin with verse 1. It begins with a few words above that. For the director of music, which leads us to think that the uh, psalm was probably composed either with music or used with it. And it was for the chief musician, a person or the director, a person perhaps like a guy called Asaph, who uh, we find out about in 1 Chronicles, who led the ark into the city of David with music. Uh, this is what David, we're told in, in 1 Chronicles 16 verse 4. He appointed, this is David appointing some, some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to make petition, to give thanks, and to praise the Lord. Asaph was the chief. Zechariah second, and then there's an, a few other chaps, and they were to play the lyres and harps. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. The priests were to blow the trumpets regularly before the ark of the covenant of God. And so there seems to be music that's bound up in uh, the worship of God. And where it has the reference to the tune of lilies, those words to the tune of at the start of the psalm is just a good guess. It just says lilies, which we're probably at a guess to say maybe that was the tune. It's a psalm of David, and the Apostle Paul also agrees with that because he quotes this psalm in Romans chapter 11 as something that David had written down. So we accept that this is a psalm of David. But we don't know a great deal more about the specific historical setting, which isn't necessarily a problem because people who've read the Psalms of all ages can appreciate, even though it's written a long time ago, that there's, same, there's the same kind of struggles that went on then that the people feel now. So we can connect with it, even though we don't know a lot about the setting. Well, a Psalm of Lament is the opposite to a hymn of praise. A Psalm of Lament's characterised by a mood that reflects that life's out of balance. It's out of equilibrium. As I was thinking about life being out of balance, I recalled the time I went on honeymoon on, on a catamaran and tipped it over. And uh, the catamaran wasn't as it should have been. And my marriage wasn't as it should have been at that time too. I think it was a bit out of equilibrium. And I think it was probably, might have been only about the fourth fight we had since we were married, but uh, no, we didn't have that many. Uh, and uh, yeah, certainly when things are not as they should be, they're topsy-turvy, and this is, this is a cry when David realises there's no one else to turn but to God, to sort things out. And that's what he does in verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. He pleads with God, and he can't hold back this urgent cry. And we can sort of connect with this imagery of deep water being a metaphor for troubles, can't we? We know that... Uh, None of us have come out of the womb knowing how to swim automatically, I think. It's some, one of those things where we've learnt that water is dangerous and we need to learn to swim. And we, when we're having it up to our necks, we're in trouble. But David gets down to business straight away. And he tells God what he's feeling. Save me, I'm in trouble. The fact that he comes to God in prayer is a good model for us because he's being honest with what he feels about God. Sometimes we feel like it, it may be uh, we don't want to express to God what we're going through in prayer. We might be disappointed in God that he hasn't changed something in our life that we're anxious about or that's bothering us. But the fact is God does know 
everything anyway. And so we might as well come clean and to express our thoughts and feelings to God out in the open. That's what we see in the Psalms. They're very frank with God. David then unleashes a series of complaints, and I've got them listed there, verses 1 to 4, 7 to 12, 19 to 21. And the complaints are important because they help us to see what motivated David to write. So we'll pick it up in the first one. They're woven throughout this psalm. He seems to not be able to get away from his complaints. Verse 2, I sink in the miry depths. These are muddy things where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. David's going under, so to speak. He's uh, saying things like there's no foothold. He can't get any traction on life. And it's a stark picture of just being overwhelmed with troubles. When are the times that you feel that way? Are there times when you feel overwhelmed with guilt? Where you think about what you've done wrong and mull it over and it gets you down. Are there times when you feel like you're being persecuted? You've been given a hard time where you're lonely. You might stand out as a Christian uh, in your community, in your street, in your workplace or sometimes in your family. Are there times when you feel like you're a square peg in a round hole? Are those the times when you feel overwhelmed David says his throat's parched from calling out and his eyes are failing but it's because the key here is he's actually he's calling out to God he's waiting for God and he's looking for God and God isn't doing much it seems and then we find out that he's got trouble with the deep waters which which are actually a metaphor for his enemies and they hate him with no real cause. It's not as though he's done anything specifically. It says, I'm forced to restore what I did not steal, but maybe this is his way of saying, I'm being punished for things I didn't do. Well, in the next series of complaints, we pick it up in verse 7. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a stranger to my brother's, an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. And so we begin to see that the suffering and the trouble that David's going through don't come out of nowhere. The struggles that he's got come out of the fact that he's God's righteous one. He's being ridiculed for God's sake. He has a zeal for God's house, which is probably a zeal for the tabernacle because, as we know, the temple wasn't actually made until Solomon's time. And we're reminded of these same words spoken about Jesus when he was cleansing the temple and said to the people trading there, he said, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered 
that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus also suffered for being righteous. If you're not a Christian yet, this is an important point. The Bible reminds us that in his kindness, he was actually suffering for our sake. The Bible says Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous, he's righteous, for us who are unrighteous in order to bring us to God. Because our problem is that we don't have zeal for God in the way that we should. We, we fall short of it. We are unrighteous. But Jesus, uh, in his goodness, he suffers unrighteously for our sake. That's the great message of the Bible, that we don't have to face God's justice alone. God's provided us a saviour, and that if we turn back to him and put our trust in this saviour, we can have the assurance that all is well with God. But if we don't, we have to face God's justice alone, without a saviour. Well, in the next round of complaints, we pick it up in verse 19. You know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Again, we're getting the handle on the situation that he's looking for some friends to comfort him, but they're few and far between. In fact, those who he thought were friends have ruined his meal. They've put gall in it and not given him anything to quench his thirst but vinegar. I was actually intrigued to read some similar words uh, this week from a local politician who spoke about cutting off some of his meetings with the Liberal National Party in recent times. And he just had a little bit of a men the fences patch up with Tony Abbott at the Port Macquarie Airport. And when the paper asked him about meeting up again with the Liberals and Nationals and why he cancelled his meetings in January, Rob Oakeshott said this to, to the newspaper. The reason I pulled the plug on our meetings was that they were feeding me honey in Canberra and vinegar in my electorate. I thought, yeah, there's a little similarity there. He's getting gall and he's, well, maybe not gall, but he's certainly got the vinegar. Uh, and maybe <clears throat> Rob's, you never know, he, he might have been reading about these things. But uh, certainly he probably thought he had some friends and is less persuaded, getting honey at one, at one time and vinegar at another time. Either way, in this psalm, the centre of the complaint is that the psalmist is suffering not for political decisions, but he's suffering for righteousness. The insults of those who insult God, those who ridicule God, they fall on him. That's probably a good summarising sense for what he's going through. Those who can't stand God and ridicule God, they also insult him. Well, his enemies don't know it. They seem to be ridiculing him without reason, but... One of the differences between David and Jesus is that David still had sin. He wasn't perfect. And we see this in verse 5 because he confesses his sin, a sin that the enemies aren't aware of. In verse 5 he says, You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. 
O Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. So in this psalm we learn that it's it's actually a good habit to come before God and to confess our sins. We're reminded that although we are people who stand forgiven, we enjoy life with God and that's a a lovely comfort to us, we still don't have a licence to sin. Romans 6, it's it's a reminder that just because we're right with God, we don't have to dwell or revel in sin. And so David here keeps a good model for us in our prayers that we have short accounts with God and we confess our sins to God. And when we do, we needn't keep mulling over the things that we have confessed. If we've, if we've confessed our sin and God forgives us, we don't need to think that we've got to keep beating ourselves up uh, and getting depressed and feeling guilty. God forgives us. He's dealt with our sin through Christ. We can see that back in history, his great love for us in sending Jesus to die for our sin. He deals with it. And so we can also calm our consciences down. The second aspect about sin that we pick up here is that if someone is disgraced, then people who stand with them could be tarred with the same brush. And so there are implications for sin that we need to be aware of as well. We should turn away from sin because it's not how God wants us to live, but also because it has implications for the people around us. And David's concerned that no one's put to shame because of him. Well, having confessed his sins to God, the reason I'm structuring the psalm in this way, by the way, is because laments have this particular structure. They have an invocation, calling upon God, and a plea, complaints, confession, and now we have some more pleas in verse 13 to 18. Having confessed, David says, But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favour, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. David's wrestling with God in prayer. Sometimes Christians talk about uh, when we pray to God, the answer is either yes or no or not yet. Well, David here, he's not taking no for an answer. He's saying, on the basis of your good character, God, do something. In your great love, out of the goodness of your love, in your great mercy, turn to me. He wants to be redeemed or the idea of being freed. But he wants more than that too. It was interesting when Amir read the next section out. It was a curse upon the enemies of God. Verses 22 to 28. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution retribution and a trap. May their eyes be dark and so they cannot see. And their backs bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. 
Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. Well, as Christians, what are we to make of those prayers for a curse on one's enemies? Well, there's a couple of things that can be said. Firstly, uh, there is a difference between the two testaments. Uh, One of them was that Israel at times was called to enact God's judgment upon sinful human beings. Some of the nations practiced wicked practices. Child sacrifice was among them. Those who worshipped the gods, Moloch uh, and Asherah, there were wicked practices that they had, cult prostitution and whatnot. Uh, And God said, don't enter the land yet, wait till the full measure of these people's sin has come up to its full measure and then go in and judge them. And so God used Israel as a means of bringing judgment upon people in the past. Secondly, we get the impression that those who are enemies of God's people are also enemies of God himself. This kind of idea is picked up in Psalm chapter 2 where we read, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. Throw off their fetters. The one in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Here the thought is that it's ridiculous that anyone can think that they can get away with shaking their fist and taking on God. It's, it's ludicrous to think that they can have a fight with God and win, or that they can take a stand against God's king and God's people. And so in these verses, we kind of get the impression that these people are insulting God and, and their insults also fall on David. And so it's in that context that David's calling upon God to judge them. But how does that square with our situation? What are we to do with our enemies? Well, a number of other things I'd say is we are always encouraged to wait for God to bring judgment uh, in the New Testament, uh, wait for God to deal with rebels And we're also given the impression that he may deal with rebels and oppressors, those who abuse power, even in this age. And he'll do it at the end in the judgment. But he'll do it in this age via means of authorities. In Romans chapter 3, Paul writes this, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He's talking about the the authorities that God's instituted. Paul continues to write, For he is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. At times, the state steps in to intervene and it hands down judgment upon monsters who do dreadful things. And the state at that point is God's avenger. He's bringing about justice. And it's not wrong to pray for justice. The state doesn't always use the sword. Some school teachers are in circumstances where they've got to carry out justice as well. We don't even use the cane these days. There's other sanctions like detention. But either way, they find themselves in a position where they are God's avenger. 
And so there is a, an idea where we do pray for God to deal with uh, injustice and abuse of power and enemies. But it seems the uh, supreme battle is actually not a physical one. We're not called to take up swords uh, and to fight a holy war in the same way as they were in the Old Testament. Our enemies, according to Paul, are of a spiritual kind. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, which is a bit freaky, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we can pray against Satan and his work, and we can pray that God will change the hearts of people. We'll pray that God will transfer people out of Satan's dominion and into his kingdom. That's the holy war in which we're encouraged to pray in. And we can pray for God's judgment upon Satan and those committed to doing his will. But outside that, I think we're challenged to love our enemies and to pray for them uh, and also share the gospel when we've got an opportunity. Well, in closing, David has a hymn of praise in verse 30 to 36 in this lament. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. There seems to be a fairly abrupt movement from grief and struggles through to joy. Uh, this praise to God apparently is meaning more to God than an expensive sacrifice such as an ox. And this idea here that the poor will sit and be glad, maybe they're, they're getting the impression that uh, praise to God... Uh, you know, that's the important thing. Whether you can afford an expensive sacrifice like an ox is less of an issue. And the psalmist remains confident that God will save, that somehow his people, there'll be hope for them. They'll dwell in this land, God's place. He'll deal with the problems and there's, there's a future to speak of, a confident future to look forward to in God's hands. This confidence is actually taken up and extended a bit further in the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament, in the New Testament, we're reminded that the meek will inherit the earth. It's not so much just the land, a, a patch of real estate in Palestine that we're to think about as being a critical thing. The Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, the whole creation is going to be restored and renewed. And we look forward to being in the glorious freedom in that new creation as God's children. The Bible reminds us that God can sort out problems in this life. He can actually use avengers uh, to deal with injustice and enemies. He can provide for our needs. He helps us. He gives us our daily bread. We can battle on and we can cope with all manner of things because God helps us to persevere. He strengthens us. And yet we realise that even the struggles in this age 
falls short of the salvation, the kind of uh, end game that's going to be a wonderful one where we really don't need to panic anymore. There's a renewed earth coming that's an exciting one. And so we've got a living hope. We've got a living hope in God both now in this life that he provides for us and cares for us, can help us work through our struggles and that there's a hope coming even in death. So we've got a hope as we look into the future, both in this life and the life to come. But that's not how everybody looks at the world, is it? Steve Jobs, the CEO of Apple, died recently. And as he um, had a brush with death in 2004, I think he had some cancer trouble in that time, he uh, developed a broader attitude on life when he started to talk to a group of uni students about life at Stanford Uni. This is what he had to say. It's not necessarily a Christian perspective, though. He says, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet, death is the destination that we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And then he says something interesting. He says, and that's, that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. Sounds like an inventor. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. And because he's talking to some young uni students, this is what he says. Right now, the new is you, but not some of you folk. Right now, the new is you, but someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. And he says, sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. There we go. The t- your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. The take-home message from poor old Steve Jobs is that, well, you know, you only get one shot of it, so you've got to do what you've got to do. It's a bit me-centred. But I don't really see that in Jesus. He actually had zeal not just to, you know, take on all the kingdoms of the world that were offered to him by Satan. He had zeal for God's house and it consumed him. He was persecuted for his righteousness for our sake. It wasn't, he wasn't just, you know, living out his dream and getting self-actualization. In fact, Jesus reminds us that life is wasted without him. You have to lose your life, according to Jesus, if you want to find your life. Because we need a saviour. Well, in closing this psalm, we're reminded to live faithfully as God's people. That if we suffer, we should be suffering as God's children. Life's not all about self-actualisation. There's more important things than that. It's more important to be godly. It's more important to be persecuted because of righteousness. Paul writes that we're children of God. That's how we're to think of ourselves. And we're going to inherit God's kingdom. He says we're heirs of God and heir inherits everything and co-heirs with Christ. And he says if indeed we share in his sufferings, there's a challenge for us in order that we may share in his glory. And I'm going to close this sermon with some words from Jesus. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever been 
marginalized because you're a Christian? Well, the good news is you know you're on the right side. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you're getting suffering and it's on account of Christ, well, at least you know you're on the right team. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you that we can be honest with you, that we can come to you with all of our struggles and that you uh, provide for us and act to change life for us and that you help us out. Lord God, we thank you for your providence in this life and we thank you for a hope of salvation into the next life. And Lord, we pray that we would be concerned about being allied to you, that we, we would be more concerned about being godly than being popular. And Lord God, we pray that if we suffer, it might be because we're Christians, not because we're getting into mischief, but because we stand with Jesus who suffered before us. Lord God, we thank you for giving us life and we thank you that we know who we are in life because we're connected back to you, the source of life. We thank you for giving us a saviour for our sins, Jesus, and that we find life when we find it with you through him. And we thank you for your goodness to us. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.